praise the, <clears throat> praise the Lord, everyone. You're going to have to uh, pardon my voice tonight. But it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Has God been good to anybody? How great is our God. I was thinking <clears throat> Christmas Day, it's a tradition around our house. It started with my dad. He was, I don't know how far back it goes. I'm trying to remember when it started. But every Christmas morning when we got there, dad would read the Christmas story <clears throat> to the grandchildren. And I read the Christmas story to the grandchildren. And as I was reading or thinking about that story before I began reading it on Christmas morning, I uh, was thinking about what God had to do to come to my world. And as I was thinking of that incredible miracle that took place that morning, when that child was born, it dawned on me that God's desire to be close to His creation was so great that the God of eternity would wrap Himself in human flesh so that humans could touch him before he touched them. God was willing to let the hands of humans, his creation, hold him first before he held them after the cross. He was able to hold us. From the garden to the cross, it had been God's desire to be in our lives, but he hadn't had the ability to do that. But after that resurrection morning, all of that changed, and now God's greatest desire is to be involved in the life of his children. There's nothing that thrills God more than being able to be involved in his children's life. You will turn with me to the book of John, chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of John, chapter 8. <clears throat> I won't read all of this chapter. I will read parts of it, but I will preach from John 8, 1 through about verse 43 or 44 before I'm through tonight. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. 
Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accuser? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I'm not sure what I should title this tonight. I... Uh, I want to entitle it, Perception is More Powerful Than Truth. And maybe that's probably the best title I should give it. Perception is More Powerful Than Truth. The Lord bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> Before I begin tonight, let me say what a great honor it is to be at home. You know, there's... The, I don't know if you understand how blessed you are. It's easy to take your church for granted. It's real easy coming here on a regular basis just to think, oh, well, it's just church. But I go to a lot of places that you don't feel what we felt here tonight. There's not the liberty that you had here tonight. There, there's not the move of God like you felt here tonight. And this, you, you are incredibly blessed for that to happen on a regular basis. And to have a pastor that won't allow church to continue without it happening. There are places I enjoy preaching and there are places I don't want to go back to. 
I promised the Lord when I started preaching I'd never turn down an invitation. And as of today, I haven't. Uh, but I can tell you, I never promised God I'd go back. <laughs> and there are a lot of places I haven't gone back to and don't intend on going back to because it's not easy to preach there. And it's, it's an honor to be here and to be able to share the Word of God with you. I, I really apologize for my voice. <clears throat> I <clears throat> probably uh, screamed a little bit more than I needed to yesterday. I was in a conference in Odessa, Texas, and uh, we had an incredible move of God those two days I was there. Um, I think... Uh, Thursday night or Friday night, uh, there were at least 37 miracles took place, people that were healed. You know, that's what we're really all about. That's what this is really all about. That's what God desires for us. And uh, so I kind of strained my voice just a little bit, and I'm sorry. So if, if you can put up with it. I do want to share something with you tonight that I've tried to share many times with you in the past, but God would never let me do it. So tonight is the night. He has kind of opened the doors to allow me to do this. Working with people for 25 plus years and having talked to over 25,000 people in one-on-one sessions, I can tell you that most of the struggles that people have in life have nothing to do with truth but perception. Truth is the only thing that can free me, but perception will cloud truth in a moment of time. We can have the ability to have the greatest experience that life could afford. But if we're convinced it's not for me, it'll never happen. I know that having been raised in Pentecost all my life and being around the church all my life, I can tell you that there were things that we said in the past that I think we did in sincerity and honesty, but they weren't always the truth. God's not going to change you or make you different. The Holy Ghost will never take over your life and take your decision-making responsibilities away from you and just make you do something. The Holy Ghost doesn't change people. People change people. The perception is, if I just get close enough to God and, and hang around God and, and feel God, then that will change my life. But it doesn't. You can have the greatest experience that life could possibly afford you, and that's God living inside of me allowing God to touch me and be part of my life, but yet having all of that, not enjoying the freedom that God desires for my life. 
I can have the greatest of relationships with God, but still not live where God wants me to live. And often, I think we think that our our, our prayer or our, our, that relationship takes care of everything, but it doesn't. There are some things God will do for me, but there are other things God will not do for me. God will never take over my life and, and, and simply um, allow me to become a, a, a computer or, or a robot and, and I just act because God programmed me to act. If I enjoy the blessings of God, I enjoy them because I choose to enjoy them. And the Apostle Paul pointed out to all of us that there are some things we better be very well aware of. There are things that can control us and define us and dictate everything that happens in our life. But we've got to make a conscience decision not to do it. That old man in prison about to be executed by Nero, knowing he has been sentenced to death, writes to the church at Philippi. And he says to that church, I have not quite apprehended that which I am apprehended of. I don't have a hold of what has a hold of me. I'm trying to grab it. I'm trying to hold on. I'm trying to discover it. I want to be part of it. I, I haven't done that yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, pressing towards those things which are before me. That old man said, I make a conscience decision to not allow my past to define my present or my future. That's a decision. That's not a deliverance. It's a decision I make that says I will not allow yesterday to have any control over today or tomorrow. It's simply a roadmap of how I got here. It is not a defining point of where I'm going. I, I can make decisions to correct all of that in life. And Jesus points that out here in, in, in the, this event that takes place in Jerusalem. John writing about this event, and from what I can gather by reading the, the New Testament, the only place this event is recorded is in the book of John. And, and John points out how this event took place. It began early in the morning. It says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. It actually, if you could stand in the eastern gate, and open that gate, which is not open today. In Jesus' day, it was open. If you could stand in the eastern gate and look due east, you would be looking at the Mount of Olives. And if you crossed the Kidron Valley and made your way up the other side of the valley, you would walk into a group of olive trees that was called the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the place that Jesus chose 
every time he was at Jerusalem to go and pray. It, it, that was a routine or, or that was part of his nature to get up in the morning and go to his prayer room and dare pray. After having prayed there in the garden of Gethsemane that morning, he returns to the temple and there enters the temple and he sits down. People begin to crowd around and they, there's a crowd begins to gather and as Jesus is sitting on one of the steps going into the temple that morning, he begins to talk to them and teach them. And in the middle of his teaching, there's, there's, there's a commotion that starts happening and a crowd starts coming, a second crowd. He has the one he's talking in front of him, but approaching that crowd is a second crowd. And that crowd comes dragging a woman and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And Moses in the law says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? How are you going to define what happens to this woman? Should she be stoned or what should take place? And Jesus would not answer them. He simply stooped and began to write on the ground. And as he wrote on the ground, they kept pressing him. And asking him, what are you going to do, Jesus? And Jesus finally stands and says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone. And stooped and wrote again. And the scripture says here that they, when they heard him, they left from the oldest to the youngest. And now the lady is left in his midst and Jesus says to her, where are those thine accusers? And she says, I don't have any, Jesus. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. And she was freed. My question to you tonight is what freed her? What allowed her to walk out of that environment free? Because the law said that she should be stoned. But because of what Jesus did that day, she was freed because she had none that could accuse. Jesus is pointing out some things that, that I have become aware of over the last few months or few weeks as I, I have preached uh, about some events in the life of Jesus. And one of the things that I have been made well aware of in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is that one thing God will never tolerate out of human beings is to take on the role or the nature of an avenger. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God will not tolerate a human stepping into that arena. I've asked myself, why why is that such an issue with God? A few weeks ago, as, as I was studying and praying and, and preparing to speak, I think the Lord spoke to me. I, I don't claim that very often, but I, I almost can con and convince tonight that God spoke to me. And, and what God said to me that day was, the reason I don't let you touch another human 
is because you didn't make them, I did. They're not your treasure, they're my treasure. The worst of sinners, the worst pedophile, the worst murderer, the worst of humanity is still mine and I made them and I'm the only one who has the right to speak into their life a curse or a blessing. So I will not allow you to put your hands on them. They're mine and they belong to me. We are God's most valuable creation. Jesus said to his disciples that where your treasure is, that's where your heart's at. We are God's treasures. We're not a mistake. We're not an accident. We're we're not broke. We're not damaged. We're not defective. God has never said, oops. There's no human alive that's a mistake. Everything God has touched is a masterpiece of creation. And in his touching man and creating man, and every human has the fingerprint of God on them. The psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made or created. David said that God created me just like he created Adam. And I am just as convinced tonight that God decided what set of chromosomes you wound up with that gave you your hair color, the shape of your nose, the color of your eyes, the shape of your face, where your ears show up on your head. God decided that when you were created. There were billions of possibilities, but God said, this is the way I want this human to come out. And he's still in the act of creating every human that shows upon this earth. And he desires more than anything to have a relationship with them and make sure nobody can wreck their lives. There are some things you need to notice in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is in the temple. He is not by the roadside somewhere. He's not where dirt's available. The temple had a granite floor. didn't have a dirt floor. For Jesus to be able to write on the floor, somebody forgot to sweep the house. See, Jesus was never caught off guard. Jesus knew what was going to happen that day when he left the garden uh, uh, on the other side of the Mount of Olives and, and he come back in the city and he walks in the temple. Jesus knew what was going to be there that day. He knew what he would be confronted with. He could have addressed this issue by the roadside. Those people were looking for him and they had spies telling them where he was at. He could have stopped on the Mount of Olives. They'd have found him there. But he knew that he needed to get to the temple because they were going to try to attack a woman whose life had been in chaos and a wreck. And they were going to accuse her of, of all kinds of immoral acts. And they didn't think it important enough to keep his house clean. So he goes to that temple and sits there that day so he would have the right place 
with the right conditions so that when they show up, he can expose them for what they truly are. That's why when they heard him, they didn't hear him. He didn't say nothing. He didn't speak. But when he started, I've heard people say that Jesus started writing their sins out. Well, I changed my opinion about that. I'm convinced he probably wrote, why is this house dirty? Why do I have the ability to write on this floor in the dirt because you don't think it's important enough to even keep it clean? In our world today, I'm afraid we are stepping into that arena and we don't somehow see the need of keeping the house clean. And that was for truth to show up. You got to make sure you understand the surroundings because if you don't understand the surroundings, you will let perception dominate truth. Jesus continues. The crowd leaves. That first crowd. The first or the second crowd leaves. First crowd's still there. So Jesus starts talking. And if you noticed in verse 31, it says he is speaking to the Jews that believe. These are believers. These are not people trying to accuse him. These are not the people out to get him. This group are believers. And notice what he said as he's speaking to them. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believe on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Notice the reaction. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed. Notice. And we have never been in bondage to any man. They say to Jesus, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been a slave to nobody. They forgot 400 years of Egypt and 70 years of Babylon. We belong to Abraham. We're not a slave to nobody. Jesus was pointing out you're a slave to yourself. You don't even have a clue what truth is. You're not even aware of how truth can change your life or what truth can do for your life. And, and, and as he talks, this group changes from believers to haters, and they want to kill him as well. You know what I've discovered about people? If you start messing with the world they live in, a lot of them want to get even with you. <laughs> They, they, they want to start, 
Now, nobody's attempted to take my life at this point, but if, if looks could kill, so here's a problem you have, and you have no control of it unless you're a sociopath. Everything that goes through your mind shows up on your face. If hate goes through your mind, it shows up on your face. If anger goes through your mind, see, it's real easy for a preacher to preach. All he's got to do is watch. It's not hard to know when, when I'm rubbing the cat in the wrong direction. All of a sudden, you, you're going to start seeing the nature start showing up. And, you know, the, the sad part of it is God has provided a means that every one of us be totally and absolutely free. But there are very few of God's children that live in freedom. God's given us the hope of absolute freedom. Nothing can control you. Nothing can dictate your life. Nothing can bind you. I will free you to become whatever you choose to be. I will give you your life back. I will take you to the garden and I will give you paradise if you want it. But we don't choose to live in paradise because our faces reflect the struggles of life we've gone through. Our faces start reflecting the chaos and the junk and the pain and the heartache and, and the issues, it just starts showing up on us that, that, that the struggles of life start becoming part of us and, 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 and it starts not only becoming part of us, it, it starts controlling us. I, I do not believe the devil has access to your mind. Salvation would not be true and free if God's worst enemy had the right to walk in your life at any time and wreck it. That's not salvation. That's not freedom. That's chaos. God don't allow the devil into your world to wreck your life. That devil can't put thoughts in your mind or, or, or jump in there and cause junk to take place. But I can tell you what he does. He can do what I've been trained to do. He knows what your face says. He don't have to read your mind. He just has to watch you a little while. And he watches your reflections and your behavior. He is the God of your world. So he can instantly start controlling your world. And all of a sudden your world gets worse. And it causes your chaos to become worse. He didn't read. He has no clue what went on in your mind. He's just watching what's going on on your face. Jesus says, You shall know the truth. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall. Now, most of the time, if you ask people to quote the scripture, they say, set you free. It doesn't say set. It says make. There's a big difference between setting free and making free. To set free is simply take the handcuffs off or to open the door and let somebody else out. To make free is to tear the prison down so there's no prison for you to be locked up in again. When God delivers you, there will be nothing left to bind or control or dictate life. 
Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth is the only thing that will free your life. It is the only thing that will bring deliverance. It's the only thing that has the power to release you into a world where you don't have to be bound by yesterday and your memories of your failures and the memories of the junk and the memories of the issues. And you don't have to be defined by what people said or what people did or how they reacted to me in life. You don't have to have your life defined by the junk. But you will be. Most of the time we are. Why? What's the last part of the verse that we never pay attention to? The truth shall make you free. That word free literally translates to liberate someone held hostage at spear point. If I'm a hostage... The question is, what made me a hostage? How, how did I become a hostage of life? What, what's made a hostage out of me? How did I get to this place where I think that, that I'm a victim in everything in life? That, it, that everything that is about me and, and what's happened and, and all the issues and I, I can't talk about life. You know, we used to greet one another by how are you doing. You don't dare do that anymore. You don't ask people how they're doing today. 30 minutes later, you're wishing you hadn't asked the question because they named every pain, every issue, all the junk, what grandma did, what grandpa did, what uncle did, what dad did. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And they never, we used to greet one. If you ask somebody how they were doing, you know how we responded? I'm blessed. And we went from being I'm blessed to well, you know, my husband left or Why do you live that life? Because your perception is that that event defined who you are. And the truth is it had nothing to do with who you are. It simply had to do with somebody making a decision that hurt other people's lives that has nothing to do with you. But it's in our nature to assume all responsibility and think, okay, it's my fault. I caused this to happen. There must be something horribly wrong with me, all these people doing these things to me. Now, I can preach this sermon better than a lot of you can. Why? Well, I doubt seriously that most of you have had 17 surgeries and 14 of them because of accidents. I've had a skill saw on my right leg, a chainsaw on my left one. Those three fingers. This one was laying on the floor. This one was hanging. That one's been smashed off. I don't have a collarbone this side. I got put to sleep to have a tumor or a cyst removed from my sinus cavity, and the intubation tube stuck to my vocal cord. When they pulled it out, they tore it loose. I'm not even supposed to be able to talk today. My friend, one of them showed up after that last problem that took place and I overheard the conversation as I'm coming out of, uh, uh, out of my 
uh, induced sleep by that doctor when he put me under for about 12 hours, and I'm coming awake, and I, I hear my friend who pastors in this town saying, Well, James, what would you learn about life today? I just kept my eyes closed and wished he wasn't there. I heard him say, your guardian angel wants a new assignment. Folks, I'm not an accident. Now, I may have had a whole lot of accidents in my life. I am not defined by what happened to me in life. I don't live my life as an accident, and it irritates me when I find people who do. I'm not a mistake. I'm not accident prone. Life happens. Bought a brand new saw blade, used it 10 minutes, 39 of its teeth came apart. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't cut a piece of steel. I didn't do anything I shouldn't have done. Got bound, jumped up. Right around the circle, right across the palm of my hand, and caused the problem. We were building a Christian school for Brother Kilgore, and we had to clear the property. We were cutting a huge oak tree down. Chainsaw got, got the chain got dull, so we went to the place to buy a new one. Went to the place that sold the saw. It was a bow saw. Put the old one on the desk. They brought out a new one. The guy that owned the saw, Brother McLean, said, uh, this is too big. And the guy argued and said, no, that's the one for the saw. So we took it back, put it on the saw, started it up, pulled the trigger, and it came off and slapped me across the knee. So I didn't cause that to happen. I wasn't being haphazard in what I did. But we can make people think you know, you're, maybe, you know, anybody ever notice what happened to Job? Did Job do anything wrong? Everybody, that, all his friends that showed up wanted to make him the problem. Why do we do that to people? Just because something happens to somebody, that's not the judgment of God or, or God trying to get their attention or God trying to do something to them. It's just life. If God wanted to get even with you, let me tell you, he could do it. He wouldn't miss either. Getting struck by lightning is not a fun thing to do. I've been there and done that one. Well, maybe I shouldn't have been outside before the storm came, but it was a long way off. It wasn't raining. Looked like it was over Hobby Airport. I'm over here in Pearland. And, but lightning can strike 20 miles in front of a storm. So I found that out. I'm not an accident. Neither are you. But there are a lot of you letting life define you by all the junk that life has showed up with. And because of what life has done, you seem to start thinking this this is me and it defines me and it dictates who I am and I'm becoming the image of my perception. 
You're not a mistake. You've never been a mistake. God looks at his creation and sees them as treasures. They're my most valuable possession. So you see, you're, you're so much more valuable than anything God has created. You are the only thing that God has made that he's willing to redeem. Angels can't get redemption. But human beings are special to God. And if you ever discover how special you are to God, it'll change your life. It's your perception of God's relationship with you that defines you. But you better make sure your perception is based on reality, not some false belief system that life has taught you, that you're a mistake. When I first began helping people back in the early 90s, late 80s, I uh, had a couple encounters. First encounter I had with Pentecostals was a husband and wife. First session I ever had was at a pastor's office on the other side of town, and they got in a fist fight. That was my introduction to Pentecostals. The pastor's in the other office. He can, the walls are paper thin. He's hearing this whole thing go on. They're going out. I had to jump up and run between them. She hit me in the back twice. I had bruises that lasted a couple of weeks. When they left, I walked in the pastor's office, and he's laughing. And I said to him, what in the world do you expect out of me? Do you think I can fix these people? All that's left of their relationship is an ear and a leg, and you want a lamb back? That's not going to happen. And he just kept laughing. Kind of got a little irritating because he thought it was funny. And then he said, oh, you give up so easy. Well, last I heard, their lives are different. They're still married. But there were some perceptions that they had developed in life that neither one of them had control over or neither one of them knew about. And those perceptions were defining them. They were making them what they were. God can fill you with his spirit, give you the greatest gift that exists. You can still sit on a Pentecostal pew and live in misery and never be an overcomer because you're allowing life to define truth instead of God defining truth. You're allowing world that you live in, and, and you've let your world get dirty enough that it's hard to see reality. First thing Jesus says when he walked in that temple by riding on the floor, first order of business, you better clean your heart up. You better make sure your heart's not full of junk and dirty. First order of business is get the heart right. You get the heart right, it'll start changing everything else on the outside. You, you start changing this old man inside, and he'll change the way you see life and the way you perceive people. But it has to start the heart. First order of business, clean the house. You know what I've discovered about life? One-sided injustices are rare. They do happen. They are rare. 
it takes two to tango. If there's a fight, I haven't found very many people that give themselves a black eye. I've, I haven't talked to anybody yet that stands in front of the mirror and practices poking themselves in the eye or hitting themselves in the mouth to give them a fat lip. I, I, I just, I haven't encountered that yet. They do exist. Now, I did meet a lady that knew how to tick her husband off so that he had hit her and knock her down. She walked into my office one day, had a, her whole side of her face was black. I thought she'd been a car wreck. And when I looked at her, my brain just didn't filter through what it was about to say. And my first response was, what in the world happened to you? I shouldn't have asked that question. But I asked it. And her response was, oh, my husband hit me. See, he did what? My husband hit me. And you let him? She said, oh, you don't understand. Just before he smacks me, I get a high. They sit on Pentecostal pews. Yeah. See, your perception of truth, it takes pain to make you feel better about life. You can have some real twisted views about life. Just because you have the Holy Ghost don't mean you have the right view of what life is. Because the Holy Ghost wasn't given to you to change your perception of life. It was given to you to give you the power for you to change life. God can't do it for you. The moment God steps in your life, starts taking stuff out you don't ask for, He just destroyed your will, and God will never do that. He, there are some things God can't do for you. you got to do for yourself. And the first order of business is letting the junk go and letting all those people off the hook that's caused you problems or did things to you or, or caused your life to be difficult. you got to make a choice that I will not allow yesterday this one thing I do. He didn't say, I pray about it. I seek God about it. I fast about it. There's no fasting or praying that will change this. It's just a decision you have to make. I will not allow that to define who I am or where I'm going. I will not allow life's events to make me think that this is God's view of me. I get asked the question all the time. Why God let this happen? Which means you got to think about the question you just asked. Why God let this happen? That question implies you think God's responsible for what took place, and God's not responsible. God doesn't allow other people to hurt you. God doesn't give somebody permission to wreck your life. God's not evil. God's not out to hurt you or wreck your life. God's out to make your life the best it could possibly be. God's desire is to give you a revelation of what He created you to be. You see, God's desire is to introduce you to you 
the real you that he made you to be so you can see you with all your treasures and your abilities and all that stuff he put in you to make you the human that you could become. And that's his desire. See, the, the Catholic Church has taught us or convinced us that the cross is about your sin and all your mistakes and all the junk. And so when you look at the cross, you got to see yourself as a wretched sinner and that you're worthless and you're no good. That didn't happen. The prophecy was he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. None of that happened at the cross. It happened at Pilate's Hall. At Pilate's whipping post, he took all that stuff. But when he got to Calvary, he crawled on that cross. They didn't have to force him there. It wasn't your sin that made him do that. It was your value that made him crawl on that cross. And he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame because now he would have an opportunity to hold his creation again and to love his creation the way he had desired to do it from the garden. And now if he went to that cross and stretched his hands out and died, it would free him to not only be around you and allow you to touch him, but now he could crawl inside of you and he could become part of your life and live inside of you and make you know how valuable you are to him and how much he desires that your life would be different than it is. See, perception is clouding our minds. We're looking at life through the junk, through the issues, through the problems. You know, my wife says in the line of business that I'm in that I'm the garbage dump of life. That people just show up and dump all their garbage out and all I see is garbage. I have to admit, there's a lot of truth to that. But I can tell you one thing. Your junk will never define my life. Who you are and what happens to you, that's not going to define who I am, where I'm going, what's going on in my life. I, I've discovered a father that loves me more than anything. And I, I am so incredibly grateful that my heavenly father, my heavenly father gave me a natural father that mirrored him in such an incredible way that when I look at Jesus, I don't see him as being demanding or harsh or hard or a dictator or somebody who's out to get me or somebody who'll never be there that's always abandoning me and will never be around me. But when I look at my heavenly father, I see him through the eyes of my natural father who was so loving and kind, who had massive hands and massive strength. But I never experienced one ounce of abuse in my life. He never used those on me. He loved me incredibly. 
He never pointed his finger at me and said, if, if you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. I never heard, and I told you so. I never heard, you're nothing but a mistake. Oh, he would occasionally say, son, what life teach you today? But he had never rubbed my nose in my failures. He'd just remind me, son, you can, you can do this. You can be bigger than this. Andrew Newberg, or I'm sorry, Kevin Lehman says that our lives are defined by the most powerful memories we have of childhood. That's the perception you have of life. That's what dictates everything about you. And until you change those, you will be controlled by them. My most powerful memory of childhood is walking into Dad's garage at eight years of age. Dad just pulled motor out of a vehicle that's sitting on blocks. And I walk up and start walking around that motor looking at it. He knows what's going on in my mind because every toy he's brought home up to that time, I've taken apart. He knows what's going on in the mind, that eight-year-old. And I'm walking around that motor looking at it, and he said, Son, would you like to take this motor apart? Now, my mom, she's standing there, and she says, Egbert. He can't take that motor apart. And Egbert says, Lois, why can't he? And Lois says, he's only eight. Egbert says, what has that got to do with it? Lois says, he'll get dirty. Egbert says, we can wash him when we get through. And Lois lost. James spent all day with his dad handing him tools and him taking this motor apart and it laying in the floor when he got, I had grease from one end of me to the other end. I, I looked like grease. But there's nothing in my life I won't try because he taught me I could do anything if I wanted to. But your perception is I can't do it. I don't know how. You just don't understand. I don't know how to do it. You will be free. God's give you opportunity. But you got to make a decision about what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe. Are you going to believe? You see that, that couple got in that fist fight that day? Here's the reason. He was raised in a family. He's the only child. His parents are very wealthy. And he never pleased them. He never did one thing right in his life. Everything he did, they criticized. They never said, son, I'm proud of you. They never gave him a compliment. They, they, there was never a time. He couldn't even, he didn't even remember a birthday. To them, life was all business. He really wasn't wanted. He's an accident. And they don't have time for him. So he grows up feeling worthless. I can't ever do anything right. I can't relate to nobody. I don't even know how to talk to people. She grew up in a Pentecostal church. She grew up in a home where people said they were Christians, but they really weren't. Her uncle's 
mom and dad divorced when she was young, and she went to live with grandma and grandpa and all the other family, and they used to take those five- and six-year-old kids and take their clothes off and make them stand on a table and dance in front of all the men. All kinds of abuse and junk. See, you better make sure your house is clean. You want life change, first order business is clean the house. Get the junk out. Make sure you sweep the house clean. Get the trash out of the house. You get the trash out of the house, then you open the door for truth to show up. But it requires getting the trash out of the house. He met her in a men's club. They had a child and decided maybe they ought to go back to church. He had never been around church in his life. All the junk starts showing up. But when they discovered they weren't defective and broke and worthless, when he discovered what her life was about, what his life was about, they all of a sudden had a revelation. Whoa, when I do this, this causes this behavior. When I do this, this causes you act like this. And I didn't realize that, that when I say these things, how hurting and how cutting those things are. And she started call, complimenting his success and his behavior. And said, you know what? I'm proud of you. You're a good dad. You're a good husband. All of a sudden, life changed because they discovered truth. What's your perception of life? How important are you to God? You think God's out to get you? You, you think God don't want to love you, that, that, that God just tolerates you being around the house of God? Is that your perception? How do you perceive life? Truth frees. Eyes trap. Please stand.